0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Introvert Theatre Podcast. This is Sergio yet again, and today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, and that is 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was directed by Steve Barron and starring Judith Judith Hoag as April, uh, Elias Cateus as Casey Jones, and a combined effort from stuntmen, suit actors, and voice actors to bring the turtles themselves to life. Up until that time, it was the it was the biggest opening weekend for an independent film, with a budget of only thirteen million and raking in over two hundred million, which is kind of crazy to think about because you have actors today that get paid more than thirteen million dollars per movie. So to consider something like this could be made on such a what would be considered a shoestring budget today is kind of crazy. Now I've, I've seen this films more times than I care to admit, and my perspective on it has changed, I have to say. When I was a kid, for example, the, the Fab Four, as I'll refer to them as, were a marketing machine, right? I mean, there were toys, clothing, and a cartoon that was more of a comedic and kid-friendly approach than the comic books that they were based on. So, as a kid, liking the movie was inevitable. I mean, there was pretty much no way around it. As an adult, I've actually come to appreciate the family dynamic. In fact, I'd argue it's it's what works best and really makes it so engaging. So to sort of summarize what this film's about, it takes directly from the early Mirage Comics storyline, uh, the Return to New York storyline, that is, in which basically the Turtles are defeated by the Shredder and the Foot Clan and are forced to leave home, to heal and find it within within themselves to return home. The fact that the Turtles have their own individual personalities and characteristic traits that translate so well to this film is an achievement in itself, and I'll go over each of the main characters individually and just kind of take it or wing it from there. (laughs) Um, I'll start with Splinter, who is voiced and puppeteered by Kevin Clash. He's the sort of surrogate father to the Turtles. He raised them their whole lives up to this point, and in the beginning of the film, after the Turtles save April O'Neil from being mugged, uh, pulls them in close for a meeting of the minds. He tells them to be careful, remain unseen to the public eye, and to keep practicing the art of ninja, because he won't be around forever. So we learn that he's very protective of them, and yet very approachable and warm. During this meeting, we can see Raphael is pacing back and forth, upset that he lost his sigh, which is one of his weapons, and he interrupts the meeting and points out that he's mad and that he lost it and seemingly wants to, you know, step out and recover it. So he gets into a shoving match with his brother Donatello and and leaves to catch a movie. And after that movie, he stops two thieves um, who attempt to steal an old woman's purse, and in doing so... He gets into a scuffle with the vigilante Casey Jones, who is about to beat the two uh, thieves to a pulp. Casey outclasses Raph, and he runs down the streets of New York screaming out in rage. And he gets home late at, late that night to find Splinter waiting for him. And Splinter's there and just kind of lights a candle, and he asks Raph to sit by him. And he does so reluctantly, and Splinter in this moment tells him basically that he realizes wrath has to channel and and handle his anger, and chooses to do so alone, and reminds him that that quality alone is is what makes him unique when compared to his brothers and He tells him he understands that and and that he chooses to face you know his anger alone, but asks that he not forget about him or his brothers, so it's a really sweet moment. Amidst the chaos and it's it's really kind of a uniquely shot point in the in the movie because it's just completely dark. You can't even see uh an outline of their of their sewer home base and it's just these two uh one animatronic or one puppet and one person in this giant rubber suit sitting and interacting in a way that's just so believable you can see beads of sweat, you know, dropping down Raphael's head, and you could even see little tears start to form in his eyes as his as he confides in his father, and it's just really, really well shot and one of my favorite scenes in the film. Early on it's it's established that Leonardo is more the leader type and very respectful and quiet and reserved and, and is always thinking. At a certain point in the film, when the Turtles are defeated and decide to hold up in in, um, April's uh, farmhouse uh, just outside of New York, he spends most of his days in deep thought and meditation in hopes of finding and connecting with their father, who by this point in the film has been kidnapped by the Shredder and the Foot Clan. He eventually does, and he has his brothers join him by campfire to sort of meditate together. In doing so, they connect with Splinter, who um, just kind of appears as sort of a force ghost in the campfire. And he basically tells them that he's proud of them because they've learned the ultimate mastery, which is of their mind and not so much the body. And he reminds them to be there for each other and kind of draw off of one another and learn from one another. Um, that's also kind of a really uniquely shot part in the film. And I think more so than anything, it, it, or most so more so than any time in the movie, um, you really get to experience the turtles being more connected and, and more of a, um, um, a family unit, so to speak. It's the first time that they're all really together and, and not all, not all off doing their own thing. Like, um. When Raph earlier left the meeting or, you know, having Mikey ordering pizza in the background and just not paying attention to anything his father is saying, you know, it's it's this really, really interesting way of bringing them together. It's it's kind of unexpected in a way because you, you don't really see um, the film going in that direction. But it's it's a really, really nice scene. And I think it's one of my favorites in the film as well, among the many. Finally, I'm going to lump Donatello and Michelangelo together because in this movie, at least, they're they're very similar in personalities. Mikey is probably the more childlike and and loudest of the brothers. Donatello is also somewhat goofy in this film and is seemingly really buddy-buddy with Mikey, almost like he's his brother's keeper. So they relate in their sense of humor, but Donnie can actually pull himself out of that headspace when he needs to. I guess the best example of this is when Mikey's waiting under a sewer grate for a a pizza that he ordered earlier in the film. Donnie kind of skateboards over to him, and Mikey lets him know that the pizza guy has 30 seconds to drop off a pizza he ordered. Donnie sits by him and asks if he ever thought about what life would be like without Splinter, given the, the conversation earlier in that meeting. Mikey sits... He has like a, um, I guess I'm assuming it's kind of like a, um, a lollipop stick in his mouth or something. And he just sits there thinking and he's contemplating really, really hard. And without hesitation, he just suddenly replies, well, time's up, three bucks off. And Donatello just kind of hangs his head in disappointment. <laughs> and that moment in particular, I really like a lot because it's, these two goofballs, you know, coming together and Donatello was really affected by the conversation with Splinter. And he looks to another person with a, a like mind, let's say, for a response just to kind of have somebody to bounce this idea off of. And and it's just completely negated and, you know, blown off by Michelangelo. And, and it's, it's expected coming from Michelangelo. And it, it seems strange by this point in this episode to point out that it's the little moments like these that are the highlights for me of all things. I think the film was written with the best of intentions, and it, and it, and it really shows. Though I, I do feel like a lot of credit should be given to Jim Henson's Creature Shop for fabricating the suits, which, when lit properly, are about as lifelike as you can get. It's bad enough that the actors had to endure hours in those heavy suits, just kind of buried in foam latex. But it says a lot to the actors' credit that they were able to emote in other ways while in these suits. Whether it was Raph, you know, kind of pacing back and forth or having his uh, his hands in his coat when he's wearing a trench coat and kind of out in the public eye. Or, let's say it was Leo sitting cross-legged meditating with his chest kind of rising and lowering there's There's just something special about the marriage of of all the practical effects in the sets, and you oftentimes find that in a lot of jim Henson's movies he had He had a certain way of bringing life to these inorganic things that he basically engineered on his own. There's a really, 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 really unique quality to Jim Henson's films, and they're they're very much alive. Maybe even more so than a lot of these CGI films that are coming out nowadays. There's just something about there's just something about seeing something that is physically on the film rather than rendered later or after the fact. So getting back on track here, the the family dynamic really helps carry the film because it allows us to appreciate not only the difference in personalities, but ultimately how they intermingle and how impacting and important their roles, relationships, and other factors that help shape their interactions. I guess it also helps establish a hierarchy within the family. It makes it more relatable because... We can see the same interactions within our own families. It also, allows, um, it also allows some time for the film and the audience to breathe. And it's super important, I think, especially in comic book-based films, uh, to take a few minutes to kind of slow things down, to allow us to familiarize ourselves with the protagonists, their intentions, their wants, and to add a human quality to an already absurd premise, especially in this film. So what makes this movie great? I think it's a combination of a lot of things ranging from set design to the score to the lighting, which in this case is very subdued and dark, but kind of works to the... I I guess you could say it works to... It works to the film's benefit, because... The costuming when it comes to the turtles, I guess you if you pay really close attention <laughs> you can see certain seams um in the neck area and there's even a scene where Donatello is laughing and his mouth is open super wide and you can actually see you can actually see the um the actor inside's teeth showing through it. And it's the most awkward thing you'll you'll ever see. <laughs> So if you're going to watch this film for any other reason, for no other reason, I should say, watch it for that blooper. It's it's hilarious. So it's it's especially the the family dynamic that really makes this movie work, because as an audience, if you can't sit there and believe that four giant turtles and a rat can be a cohesive family unit, then you won't be able to allow yourself to believe anything else that happens in this film. So I think this is a good place to stop and and say I can't recommend this movie enough, obviously, if you haven't seen it. It ain't Shakespeare, but then again, I, I once had a college professor who claimed that Shakespeare's writing was the equivalent of the trashy writing in the WWF, or WWE's as it's known today. So it's all subjective, though, right? Anywho, until the next episode... Um, I guess take care and hope everyone enjoys their Tuesday. As always, I have no fucking clue what I'm going to watch next. But I would like to get to something smaller. Um, Just because, I mean, I I don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, Hollywood or quote-unquote Hollywood films. Big-budget films. For the entirety of the the podcast, I, I kind of want to um, spread spread and spread out the genres, and maybe tackle the silent film era. Um, but I, I think the direction I'm heading, at least with the next episode or two, is to cover Danny Boyle's Train Spotting and Train Spotting Two, or T Two Train Spotting, as they've dubbed it. So I think that's a good I, th- I think I'm gonna head in that direction, so you can expect uh train spotting to be the next episode and then that would technically be on the thirty first of this month so we'll we'll I'll talk about train spotting next. I'm really looking forward to watching that I haven't seen it in a while, and the second one is is absolutely. Bonkers and and hilarious in its own way, uh, especially when seeing it so many years after the first, and seeing how these characters grow along with us. So yeah, train spotting, train spotting two will be over the course of the next couple of weeks. Anywho, again, thanks for listening. Take care, enjoy your Tuesday, and until the next episode.